Minnesota is in the valley. As you know, today's topic is the reasonable accommodation process. I appreciate everybody joining us today for this discussion. I know that everybody's busy. There's plenty of other things going on, but I hope that you will find it beneficial, particularly uh, as the federal workforce transitions, uh, in many cases, back to the office following the height of the COVID pandemic. And frankly, uh, even beyond that, um, you know, I've been in the Army now for uh, over 30 years, and I did not know a whole lot about the reasonable accommodation process and just getting ready to do this episode, I'm, I'm a lot smarter and I've gotten a lot out of it. So um, COVID or not, this is an important process for all leaders to understand. So before I introduce our panelists, I wanna, uh, I wanna go to our word cloud. Everyone joining us on WebEx should have seen the question, when you hear, what do you think of when you hear the term reasonable accommodation? So if we could go ahead and go to the results of that word cloud now. As you know, the way this works, the larger the font, the more frequently the word was used in a submitted answer. So I'm looking at it now. It appears that disability uh, assistance, work, and help were the top four, were the top four answers. So towards the end of our discussion, just like on the last episode of In the Valley, we will ask the same question again. You'll have the chance to submit your answer and we'll see how it changed. We'll see how it changed based on what you hear from the panel. So thanks Cameron for, for sharing that with us. So now I'm gonna take this opportunity to introduce our panel members and you should see them on camera on your screen. Mr. Willie Day, the Mississippi Valley Division EEO Manager, will discuss and provide an overview of the reasonable accommodation process from an EEO manager's perspective. You, he's easily recognizable on the screen as he is wearing pink and looks really good in pink. I think he's the best dressed on camera today. Uh, next is Ms. Rachel Deal. Rock Island's EEO Manager, who will discuss the disability program manager's role in the, in the reasonable accommodation process. When you hear the acronym DPM, it is in this case, it's referring to disability program manager. And then our, our other panelist is Mr. Stacy Sigmund, natural resource manager, Lake Wachita Field Office, Vicksburg District, a supervisor who has recently received and processed a reasonable accommodation request for one of his employees. Stacy will be able to share a supervisor's perspective. So I really wanna thank all three of you for dedicating your time to this broadcast, for preparing for it, for dressing up for it, and contributing to a better understanding of this important topic. Now, before I delve into the questions, um, I do wanna clarify something up front. About a month ago, the Office of Personnel Management released a modification to aspects of their emergency telework guidance that went into effect, uh, I guess it was now last March timeframe that maximized telework. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, so we got the modification of that last month. Meanwhile, USAFE has taken that and is updating their instructions to help explain to us what it means and how it will be implemented. But that is a separate topic. What we're talking about today is the process for reasonable accommodation, how to request it, some tips on how to navigate it, 
some lessons learned, and who to contact if you have questions. So I'd like to start things off with a series of baseline questions for Willie. Starting with those basics, what exactly, Willie, is reasonable accommodation? Well, ma'am, uh, before, before I answer that question, I'd just like to thank you for recognizing me as the best friend. Yes. I'm not sure how Rachel going to feel about that, uh, but I appreciate that. And, ma'am, I'd like uh, you to know that I've always admired the outfits you wear on a daily basis. Having said that, ma'am, <laughs> I'll go ahead. No. I'll go ahead and answer. Okay. I think I hear a hot mic out there. Okay. Okay, ma'am. I'll go ahead and answer your question. First of all, ma'am, a reasonable accommodation is no more than a modification to the workplace or a change to the workplace from the way things are usually done that allows a qualified individual with a disability to perform the essential function of their tasks or duties and to enjoy the benefits of employment, ma'am. Also, uh, I really would like to add that um, it's important uh, that we provide reasonable accommodations because if we don't provide these reasonable accommodations to individuals with disabilities or they don't request a good reasonable accommodation, they may no longer be qualified for the position of which they hold, and that's why we have reasonable accommodation. And another thing, uh, this is just from Willis' perspective, uh, from a supervisor perspective, I see providing reasonable accommodations to individuals as no different than providing work resources to employees without disabilities, except for a reasonable accommodation in a link to a disability. Uh, both employees, individuals without disabilities and individuals with disabilities, still need the resources to perform the essential function of their job. So if we as supervisors look at it that from that perspective, we're still providing our employees with the resources they need to accomplish their mission then maybe that'll give us a different perspective on reasonable accommodation. But just keep it in mind, the reasonable accommodations are linked to a disability. Ma'am? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a great thing to keep in mind. Uh, you mentioned qualified individual with a disability and the, the phrase essential functions. Can you expound on the importance of those two terms? Yes, ma'am, I can. But, uh, uh, however, before I expound on those two terms, let me just explain what an individual with a disability is before we get to the qualified piece of that. Uh, an individual with a disability is no more than a person that has a mental or physical impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities. And I'll explain the major life activities here in a second. The individual has an uh, impairment or a record of impairment or is generally regarded as having an impairment. Uh, now, I mentioned major life activities. Major life activities, no more than the things that we do on a daily basis in caring for ourselves, such as performing manual tasks, walking, seeing, hearing, speaking, learning and working. Uh, now to get back to your original question, ma'am, a qualified individual with a disability. A qualified individual with a disability is a person that is uh, capable of performing the essential function of their task with or without a reasonable accommodation for his or her disability. Now, you also asked me about essential functions. 
the essential functions of the job, and this is important, are the primary duties for which that job was created for. There may be a limited amount of people within the organization that can perform that function as well, and also it may be a specialized functions. And that's why we're not allowed uh, to remove essential functions because they're specialized tasks when it comes to providing these accommodations, ma'am. Okay, thanks, Willie. It is important to start with definitions, and there are a lot of definitions that folks need to be aware of in this process. So another important question, how does an employee begin the process for reasonable accommodation? Well, ma'am, uh, employees simply have to notify their supervisor that they need an accommodation for a, a disability-related illness. And that request can be oral, it can be written, and the employee does not have to use the term reasonable accommodation. As a matter of fact, uh, simply, all the employee really have to do is let a supervisor know that they're having problems or experiencing difficulties performing the task related to a medical condition. Uh, and that's, a, in essence, a request for a reasonable accommodation. They don't have to use no magical terminology such as, I have a American Disabilities Act, ADA, or a Rehabilitation Act condition or disability, or again, use the term reasonable accommodation. They simply have to say, hey, listen, boss, Willie, I'm having problems uh, completing my task or performing the essential function of my task because of a medical condition. For example, if an employee uh, informs a supervisor, hey, Willie, I'm having, I'm having trouble uh, getting to work at my regular scheduled time uh, because of the medical treatments I'm currently undergoing. Well, to me, that's in essence is a request for a reasonable accommodation, and the supervisor should be informed enough to explore uh, uh, that statement from there with the employee. Okay, so in, is, I guess, sort of related to that, is it appropriate for a supervisor to ask an employee if they need a reasonable accommodation? Uh, that's, that's a very good question, ma'am. Uh, generally, no. However, if a supervisor uh, has an employee that has a known disability uh, and the supervisor knows that the employee is struggling with a task and supervisors think it's related to that known disability, you know, highlight a known disability here, the supervisor may or can ask that employee if he or she needs a reasonable accommodation. Now, if that employee says no, the supervisor has has uh, fulfilled his or her obligation at that time. For example, uh, if a supervisor has an employee, uh, just say a deaf employee, who's about to go TDY, well, being a deaf employee, the supervisor knows the employee has a known disability. That supervisor can ask that employee if he or she needs an accommodation for a TDY. Another example would be, uh, if a supervisor is about to have a farewell, like we did for Colonel Bailey yesterday, uh, and have an employee that utilizes a wheelchair, and this uh, function is going to be conducted at a restaurant or cafeteria or something, the supervisor can ask that employee with that known disability if he or she needs accommodation. So he or she can enjoy the benefits of employment because going to that function is a benefit of employment. Now, having said that, ma'am, uh, I also think it's important for supervisors, managers, supervisors to know at any point they can ask an employee if they need assistance. And now I'm talking about employees without disabilities. 
That's our supervisor responsibility. If we see an employee struggling, we can't ask them if, we, if they need assistance. However, I, counsel, I uh, uh, caution supervisors when they do that, not to ask the employee if they need a reasonable accommodation because that infers a disability. Do not ask the employee if they have a disability, but it's okay to ask them if they need assistance. We do that on a daily basis. So distinction is do not ask about a disability, do not ask about a reasonable accommodation, but it's your supervisor's responsibility to make sure your employees are performing to the standards, ma'am. Okay, so let's say the employee has made a request. What are the supervisor's responsibilities after making that request? Well, ma'am, uh, after an employee makes a request, the supervisor should engage that employee in what we call the interactive process. And that's very important. You'll probably hear this throughout this dialogue. And during the interactive process, this is dialogue between the supervisor and the employee about the nature of the request, to clarify the request, to obtain and gain any information regarding the needs and alternatives when it comes to accommodation. Uh, to evaluate the different accommodations that are possible out there, and so they can all make an informed decision about the request. But the interactive process here is where they sit and talk about everything involved in this accommodation request. So the interactive process is very important now. Yeah, I think definitely one of the, the themes of this, this entire episode is going to be in, being interactive, uh, and good communication. I think we're going to hear that several times throughout. So the reasonable accommodation process is underway. How long does it take to complete the process? Another great question. Ma'am, uh, that uh, depends on the nature of the request. Uh, some requests can be granted immediately. For example, uh, I have assisted employees who have requested sit and stand desks uh, because they were available, a couple was available in the supply room, they were granted immediately. Uh, the same thing for a couple ergonomic chairs out of assisted employees with. Uh, then again, there are some requests that can take additional time. Uh, for example, assistive technology can take, uh, uh, take a little time. If we have to, through the disability program manager, uh, request some type of uh, medical documentation, it may request additional time. However, to answer your question, absent extenuating circumstances, and this is by AR 690-12, the request should be granted, modified, or denied within 30 business days after the initial request. Okay, so that's a good marker to put on the wall. You use the term modified, uh, that a supervisor might modify an employee's request. Why and or when would a supervisor make a modification? Well, ma'am, uh, a, a supervisor does not have to grant the specific accommodation that was requested. Uh, the supervisor has an option of uh, alternative accommodations. Uh, as long as that alternative accommodation is an effective accommodation and allows that individual who made the request to perform the essential function of their job. Uh, for example, uh, I requested an employee, I assisted an employee uh, with a, a, a modification, where well, I assisted the supervisor with the modification. In this particular request, the employee took medication that had side effects in the morning. So the employee uh, requested telework. They wanted to telework five days because 
they had side effects from their medication. It took it more than that last 30 to 45 minutes. So when the supervisor engaged in the active process, they explored alternative accommodation and determined that supervisor determined, okay, I will allow this employee to come in an hour later, which is an alternate work schedule, and that better benefited the supervisor or the organization and the employee. So the supervisor modified that request by giving that individual an alternate work schedule instead of telework five days a week, which she requested, requested on this modification. The important piece here is that if there are several effective accommodations out there, more than one, uh, the preference should be to the requester. However, the ultimate decision is still left up to the supervisor of which, which uh, uh, accommodation to provide. I appreciate the explanation as well as the real-life example. I think that really helps uh, everyone understand how this works uh, and the mechanics of it. So I think I get it. A modification might be an alternate solution to the original request. So thanks for that overview, Willie, and addressing the highlights of the policy and process. And so now I'd like to shift the discussion to Rachel for the Disability Program Manager or DPM's perspective. Uh, Rachel, my first question, what is the role of the DPM and how is the DPM's role different from that of other EEO practitioners? First, I'd like to say um, thank you and good afternoon, ma'am, and as well to our participants joining. Um, the Disability Program Manager is an EEO uh, practitioner who's appointed by the EEO manager, and the DPM serves as a resource for supervisors and the decision makers. More often than not, the decision maker may be the supervisor. We'll get into that in a bit. Also, but we're here to help uh, employees navigate the reasonable accommodations process. Um, the Disability Program Manager uh, is fortunate enough to attend the Defense Employment Opportunity Management Institute's Disability Program Manager course. And that course educates the program manager on the ins and outs of facilitating the reasonable accommodations process and to ensure that managers, supervisors, and employees have the best resources available to them. Great, thanks, Rachel. And I have to confess before I ask the next question that I had not heard of the Disability Program Manager until very recently, so um, I'm learning a lot just by hearing the answers to these questions. Can you amplify some of the specific tasks that are inherent in your role as a Disability Program Manager? And uh, what can employees and supervisors expect? Yes, ma'am. Just to name a few, the Disability Program Manager um, obtains the reasonable accommodations tracking number. The reasonable accommodations tracking number is necessary for the EEO office to maintain willingness um, on the request. We're also here to assist with requesting medical documentation when a disability is not obvious or it's not currently documented. Um, we're here to assist with the determination whether an employee or an applicant is an individual with a disability and inform the supervisor and the decision maker whether the individual disability falls under the definition of, dis of disability. Our, additionally, we are here to assist with document retention. We are neutral advisors in this process. And that's a very difficult role. Um, 
that we ensure neutrality so that there are no conflicts of interest throughout this process. Okay, well, thanks for explaining that. Uh, you mentioned the supervisor and or decision maker. What's the difference between the two? Uh, isn't the employee supervisor also the decision maker in a reasonable accommodation request? That's a great question. And I said I'd get back to this. Ma'am, usually that is the case. The decision maker being the employee's immediate or first line supervisor usually has the authority to decide. However, um, the, the decision maker um, has the authority to decide um, and to provide the accommodation. Okay, um, well that's... Okay, yep. oh, pardon me. Um, in the case of an applicant, the decision maker will usually be the selecting official, an agency official in the selecting chain of command, or an HR staff member assigned to process the vacancy. Usually that staffer falls in um, the CPAC or the Personnel Advisory Center. In some cases, the decision maker may be a higher level reviewer or a higher level official in the employee's chain of command with the responsibility of approving those reasonable accommodations. In that case, then the supervisor who receives the request for reasonable accommodation must notify the decision maker within two business days. I want to repeat that. If a supervisor in an employee's chain of command receives a request for a reasonable accommodation, they are to request, they are to inform the supervisor, the immediate supervisor of that employee within two business days. Okay, great. So Willie mentioned that absent extenuating circumstances, a decision maker has 30 business days to grant, modify, or deny a request. Uh, what recourse does an employee have if the decision maker denies the request outright or maybe is not willing to approve the employee's preferred option? Yes, ma'am. First of all, the decision maker must consult with the disability program manager and the office of counsel prior to any proposed denial of reasonable accommodation. This allows the decision maker, the Office of Counsel, and the Disability Program Manager to explore and consider all resources and options that are available to the Army, not just budget resources of the organization. The Office of Counsel will conduct a legal review of the denial prior to the decision maker informing the requester in writing. The written denial must be provided, must provide information about the individual's right to file an EEO complaint and invoke other applicable statutory and regulatory processes, including the availability of alternative dispute resolution programs. Okay, appreciate that feedback, Rachel. So somewhat, um, I just wanna pull on one thread. I've heard the term undue hardship uh, used when considering a request for reasonable accommodation. What does undue hardship mean? Ma'am, in general, undue hardship means significant difficulty or expense incurred when considered in light of overall financial resources of the organization, excluding those resources designated for specific purposes that do not include reasonable accommodations. Undue hardship refers not only to financial difficulty, but to accommodations that are unduly extensive, substantial, or disruptive or would alter the nature of the operations of the Army's organization. A specific type of reasonable accommodation causes 
significant difficulty or expense, the Army does not have to provide the accommodation. However, determination of undue hardship is always made on a case-by-case -case basis. Considering factors that include the nature and the cost of the reasonable accommodation, reasonable accommodation needed and the impact of the reasonable accommodation on the Department of the Army, the USACE mission, and the operations. Okay. Um, and one question about privacy. Should an employee expect that their supervisor or commander is not going to share their situation with others? Correct, ma'am. Reasonable accommodation requests are covered by privacy rules, and employers may not disclose that an employee is receiving an accommodation, because that usually amounts to a disclosure that the individual is self-identifying as being an individual with a disability. The ADA specifically prohibits the disclosure of medical information except in certain limited situations, which do not include disclosure to coworkers. So the fact that an employee has an accommodation of a disability is confidential. If another employee asks about the accommodation, a supervisor can say something such as, it is a personal matter, or it is the agency's policy to respect employee privacy. And I also inform the workforce that there are resources that are available to all employees. Yeah, great. Thanks for that clarification on privacy. So, uh, and appreciate the role, your rundown on the role of the DPM and the related topics and the things that you do in that role. So now we're gonna transition to our other guest, Stacy Sigmund, to hear about an actual RA request he processed. Stacy, thanks again for joining us today. And if I could begin with the question, how did the process work for you when you received the reasonable accommodation request from your employee? Were you familiar with the process? If not, where did you go for guidance? Well, thank you for having me this afternoon. I appreciate that. Uh, great question. Um, I was not familiar with the reasonable accommodations process at the time, so I reached out to the EEO office, made contact, and they started explaining the process, uh, provided us with a checklist, um, kind of told us what to expect. Uh, that was at the time we learned that communication is a big piece of this whole process. We had meetings with the EEO, had meetings with the employee. We were able to get a memorandum in, in place uh, reasonably quick. Okay, so it sounds positive from the outset. You mentioned contacting the EEO office. Uh, did you involve anyone else in this process from beginning to end? Yeah, yes, ma'am. Uh, we also was engaged with the disability program manager the Office of Counsel, the lemur, and as well as the union, the employee wished to be represented at the meetings, which was fine, and so they were also involved, and then also communicating within my chain of command as well. Okay, so I, I think we're all probably interested to hear your perspective Did you on this. Did you uh, experience any challenges or frustrations? If you If so, can you share them with the audience? Certainly. You know, I think the greatest, I think, challenge for me was the length of time on the process. Um, EEO was up front that, you know, every every request is different. Some can be resolved quickly. Some can be longer. I think early on I had a, uh, I think I had this unrealistic timeline in my head. I thought that it would, you know, go fairly quickly. 
and it, it did not. And so that was frustrating. You know, once we were through it, look, looking back, I think if we had to process another one, that wouldn't be an issue. EEO did a good job. I just think I put put that unrealistic expectation on myself and just wasn't listening clearly probably. Well, we appreciate your honesty, Stacey. Uh, beyond expectation management that you've already mentioned, can you share uh, with us some of the lessons learned and maybe some advice that you would give other supervisors if they haven't gone through this process before? Sure. Um, a reasonable accommodation, it, it's a process. Learn the process, trust the process, and execute the process. Um, there are do-outs, like has been discussed, with the 30-day window. If you have 30 days to answer something, it, it's better to have it answered in day three and not day 29. So when you have do-outs, make sure you hit those deadlines. Uh, the reasonable accommodations process, it helps protect the employee, the supervisor, as well as the core. Uh, engage with the EO, engage with Lemur, engage with the Office of the Council, uh, engage with your supervisors. Communication, I think, is the key to this entire, this entire process. I did make a little side note that doing nothing is not a good plan. And so if things aren't happening, reach out to the employee, reach out to EEO. Uh, if something's not happening, it, it may be on your part that maybe that you've forgotten something or missed something. So communicate. Uh, and lastly, really communicate the meetings, the phone calls, the emails, because at some point you may have to reach back uh, and have to build a timeline. And having these documents are extremely important for everybody. And probably I think lastly would be, when in, when in doubt, call EEO. They're there for the employee. They're there for the supervisor, and they understand the process. And so that, I think that would be my, my takeaways. Great. So those are solid points and lessons learned, and I appreciate you sharing your perspective. Uh, so we're going to go back to Willie. Um, Willie, from your perspective, has the reasonable accommodation process changed or been modified due to the COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, no, ma'am. The, uh, the reasonable accommodation process has not changed. Uh, AR 690-12 has not been modified or updated. I would just encourage uh, managers, supervisors, and employees to be uh, very flexible during the COVID environment because, you know, shipments are slow. There are backlogs. It's important that the, again, the uh, the, especially the supervisor, the decision maker, be very creative during this time because they can always provide uh, interim accommodations until they get their preferred accommodation in, ma'am. Okay, so and a couple of follow-ups for you, Willie. Uh, if a job may only be performed in the workplace, are there reasonable accommodations for individuals with disabilities absent undue hardship? that could offer protections to an employee who, due to a pre-existing disability, is at higher risk from COVID-19? Um, well, yes, ma'am, there, there may be a uh, reasonable accommodation that can offer that uh, protection to employees. Uh, again, it's important to be very creative uh, during this time. Uh, for example, that it depends. Uh, it's important that we engage in the interactive process here again. Uh, and have that dialogue with the employees to determine what's going to make that employee feel safe. There are a lot of things I think we can do uh, for particular employees. For example, for example, uh, temporary job restructuring of marginal duties. I think I mentioned that we really don't want to remove essential functions. 
uh, maybe temporary transfers, uh, modifying work schedules. Actually, I have seen uh, employers or supervisors put up plexiglasses uh, for employees who were concerned about exposure. I've seen one-way hallways, uh, uh, limited amount of people on the elevators. So just being creative, and, and there can be accommodation, ma'am, absent undue hardship, if we think that in those terms, uh, that can uh, protect individuals who are concerned about the COVID environment. And, and somewhat related to that, if an employee has a pre-existing mental illness or disorder that has been exacerbated by COVID-19, may he or she now request a reasonable accommodation? Well, yes, ma'am. Uh, again, an employee can uh, request accommodation anytime he or she feels they need accommodation. Uh, however, when it comes to this, Supervisors, along with the DPM, have to determine uh, the condition, uh, whether that uh, request is related to a disability, uh, and discuss that accommodation with the individual to ensure that uh, it fits the requirements for a reasonable accommodation. Uh, they may even have to request medical documentation, but it's still the same reasonable accommodation process, ma'am. Ma'am, I think you're muted. Uh... The CDC has highlighted that individuals age 65 and over are at higher risk for severe, uh, potentially for a more severe case of COVID-19. So the question is, do employees age 65 and over have protections under the federal employment discrimination laws? Uh, yes, ma'am, absolutely. Uh... Employees are covered under the uh, federal anti-discrimination laws. As a matter of fact, the Age Discrimination Employment Act uh, protects all employees uh, 40 years old and older from employment discrimination. So basically, that prohibits us from involuntarily excluding 65 years old and older employees from the workplace. Uh, and unlike the American with Disabilities Act, the Age Discrimination Employment Act does not call for reasonable accommodation. Uh, however, uh, we still have the flexibility to assist those employees 65 years old and older. Uh, so the Age uh, Discrimination Employment Act does not prevent us from treating employees 64 years and younger unfavorably compared to those 65-year-olds because of the CDC guidance. So there is an act that protects employees six, uh, 40 years old and older. Uh, so they are still protected, the 65-year-olds and older. So again, that flexibility comes in there. So we as supervisors shouldn't be worried if we make a special provision for an employee that's 65 years older that we're violating the policy because the age discrimination and employment act protects us from that. Should someone 64 years or younger complain or want to initiate a complaint that they'll receive disparate treatment because they're not 65? Okay, yeah, that's good to know and to understand. Um, my next question is something that I've been asked directly by a number of employees across the region. So I hope everyone is listening closely to the answer. 
Is an employee entitled to a reasonable accommodation in order to avoid exposing a family member who is at higher risk of severe illness from COVID-19 due to an underlying medical condition? Uh, no, ma'am, absolutely not. An employer is not entitled to a reasonable accommodation to avoid exposing a family member who is at higher risk. Uh, now, although the uh, American with Disabilities Act prohibit discrimination based on association uh, with an individual with a disability, that protection is limited to disparate treatment and or harassment. The ADA, which is American with Disabilities Act, does not require a supervisor or an employee to accommodate an individual without a disability. And I emphasize without a disability, based on the disability-related needs of uh, a family member or a person or a person with whom he or she associates with. Uh, bottom line up front, the reasonable accommodation process is strictly for employees with disabilities. For an example, uh, an employee without a disability, without a disability, is not entitled to telework uh, under the ADA. Uh, as accommodation in order to protect a family member uh, with a disability from COVID exposure. Thank you for answering that. And to clarify for everyone listening to that answer, the need to protect family members can still be addressed, just not under the reasonable accommodation process. Is that what I'm hearing, Willie? Yes, ma'am. Okay, so the important thing, once again, is to communicate with your leaders about your options. Uh, communication, communication, communication is, is definitely the key word in all of this. And um, we can, you know, supervisors can explore the other options that are available. So going back to the pandemic, if, if we granted telework for the purpose of slowing or stopping the spread of COVID-19 uh, over the last 14 months, now that we are reopening the workplace and people are going back to their facilities, do we automatically have to grant telework as a reasonable accommodation to every employee with a disability who requests to do so? Uh, no, ma'am, we're not entitled to do that. Again, uh, the supervisor and employee is entitled to understand the uh, disability-related limitation that necess necessitates that request of that accommodation. If there's no disability-related uh, limitation to that request, then the supervisor or the employer is not entitled to grant or approve that telework request, ma'am. Any reasonable accommodation request have to be linked to a disability. So just because an individual been teleworking for the last 14 months, uh, is not entitled to continue telework unless, as a reasonable accommodation, unless it's tied to a disability. Now, there is a telework policy, which is totally different or a different arrangement that uh, the supervisor may approve. But I just want the audience to understand that a uh, telework as a reasonable accommodation is totally different than a telework policy within the organization. So please don't get those two confused because telework as a reasonable accommodation is linked to a disability. The organization telework policy is totally different, and that's something that employee have to work out with his or her supervisor. Right, and I think, and that's an important thing that we continue to repeat. There's, there's things covered on, under reasonable accommodation, and then there's other policies in effect 
to take care of our employees. So I'm, I'm gonna ask a, yet another uh, COVID-related one, and, and this is probably starting to sound repetitious to our audience, but um, I have seen these questions coming in in various forms, so I wanna make sure we address as many of them as possible. So the CDC identifies a number of medical conditions that might place individuals at higher risk for severe illness if they contract COVID-19. An employer knows that an employee has one of these conditions and is concerned that his or her health will be jeopardized upon returning to the workplace, but the employee has not requested accommodation. How does the ADA apply to this situation? Well, ma'am, if the employee does not, has not requested a reasonable accommodation, uh, the ADA does not mandate the supervisor or the employee, employer to act. Uh, in other words, we can't force an individual, course, an individual to telework because they may be at higher risk. Uh, we can't exclude that individual from the workplace. Uh, if that individual needs accommodation, that individual should request accommodation. Now, that's the only exception to this is if that individual's disability uh, poses a direct threat to the individual's health and a reasonable accommodation cannot um, lessen or eliminate uh, that threat, then the employer or the supervisor then can address that from a different avenue. Uh, but the ADA does not mandate that we take any action unless that employee requests a reasonable accommodation on their own. Okay. And should we inform employees now to ask for reasonable accommodations they may need as we reenter the workplace? Now, yes, ma'am. Uh, absolutely. We can do that. We can notify the workforce uh, in advance to let them know if they need accommodation in advance that they can request that accommodation now. However, if that employee choose to wait until such time they come back to the workplace to request a reasonable accommodation, the supervisor still has to process and address that accommodation. The key thing here to remember is that, again, we cannot force or coerce an employee to request a reasonable accommodation so we can get ahead of the process. That's totally left up to the employee when they want to request that accommodation. Okay, great. Thanks, Willie. So, Rachel, I'm going to come back to you for a couple of final questions. From the DPM's perspective, what is the most important phase of the reasonable accommodation process? Well, without, man, without a doubt, I would have to say the most important part is the interactive process. I overly advise my managers and supervisors on the interactive process. As really stated up front, it's both the supervisor and the employee's opportunity to clarify the request explore options and work out solutions that will be win-win for both the employee and the organization. I highly encourage supervisors and employees to take advantage of this opportunity to engage each other about the specifics of the request. Okay, thank you. And, and Rachel, any final, final thoughts from you as we start to close? Yes, thank you for this opportunity. The definition of disability should be construed in favor of broad coverage of individuals, and the determination of disability should not require an extensive analysis. The priority is to ensure reasonable accommodations are provided to individuals with disabilities, rather than to determine whether if a medical condition meets the definition of a disability. 
An accommodation is to help an individual perform the essential functions of their job. Okay, great. Um, Willie, this has been a helpful con uh, conversation. I appreciate you establishing the framework for this. Where can employees learn more about the reasonable accommodation process? Uh, well, ma'am, I would start with uh, AR 690 12. That's the Army's procedures for processing reasonable accommodations uh, in Appendix C. Uh, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission EEOC website has tons of information on the reasonable accommodation process and anything related to disabilities. And the uh, USAFE RASAP uh, SOP, which is, I worked on that, is, is, has a lot of information in it. It's currently being staffed, and we expect that to be released soon. Uh, it goes above and beyond AR 690-12, and those should uh, be in the chat. The links to those references should be in the chat now. Yep, I see them in the chat now. So if you're on WebEx and you can look at the chat, you can see those links there. Of course, you can also uh, go to your uh, e local EEO manager and get that information as well. So um, those are the questions that I had on my list uh, that I've been thinking about and um, trying to learn more about this process. We're going to transition now to closing and wrap up. But before I do that, I want to ask our team to repost the question we started with. What do you think of when you hear the term reasonable accommodation? So our audience can go ahead and enter their vote. And while you're doing that, I'm scrolling through to look at what some of the questions we have in the chat. And one I saw early on uh, was, what are some common disabilities? So maybe I'll go to Rachel. Uh, Rachel or Willie, you know, some people wanted, were asking what are some of the common disabilities? Pardon the delay, ma'am. I went to grab the SF-256, which is a form that you may be provided with the opportunity to complete when you are in processing. This form identifies um, the major self-identification of an individual uh, that may have a disability, but it also goes on to identify our targeted disabilities, which are a subset of disabilities. Um, so SF-256 is the form that you may self-identify your disability, but you can also update that on MyBiz as well. Okay, good. Um, can, and so, Rachel, I'm going to ask, ask you this question as well. Uh, what are the, you've already mentioned one form. Can you talk through some of the other required documents uh, for an employee to initiate reasonable accommodation? That's a great question, ma'am. Technically, an employee can request a, make a request for accommodation verbally. It can be in an email. Um, it does not have to be submitted on a specific form. And as Willie stated before, the individual doesn't have to say the specific magic words to request a reasonable accommodation. If you look at the Appendix C of AR 690-12, that does provide the forms that are available for the reasonable accommodations process, but always contact your EEO office. Okay, very good. Uh, let's see, Some, another question on here. Can reasonable accommodation be provided 
to new employees during the onboarding process. Uh, Willie, let me let me start throw that one out at you, and you might get re some reinforcement from Rachel as well on that one. Well, that, that's fine, ma'am, and that's a good question. Absolutely. I mean, we've hired this employee, so they are entitled to a reasonable accommodation just like any other employee, uh, because once they once they onboard, they are employees. So absolutely, yes, they can be provided to onboarding employees. And if I may pick off that, applicants are also um, entitled to the reasonable accommodation process. So even if that employee is not on board as our employee, they're applying to a position within our organization, we may be able to offer them an accommodation. So yes, is the answer to the question. Okay, good. Um, I think that's all the time we have for the live questions. Uh, to our audience, if you, if you have further questions that we did not get to, please contact your district EEO professionals. They are the experts in this process. So um, as the word cloud is building there, uh, I just want to provide us a little bit of a summary from everything we've heard. Um, you know, in preparation for this episode, to be a moderator for this, I had to learn a lot about this process, and it's something that I really have not been involved in. Um, but I've been taking a lot of notes, and here's some of the main points that I think are important takeaways. Number one is to know the process, both employees and supervisors. Uh, contact your EEO managers for more information. Uh, if we could, uh, Cameron, if you could go ahead and post the slide that shows all of our EEO practitioners so everybody can see them. So these are the folks that you can contact if you have any questions about this. The second, if we can just go ahead and leave that up uh, while I go through the rest of these takeaways and then we'll go back to the word cloud. Uh, lesson number two, be patient and trust the process. In fact, I wanna highlight, I had a, saw a couple of comments in the chat uh, that um, Colonel Miller made a comment in there that he his perception was that the reasonable accommodation process might be adversarial or might have been um, from the outside and not knowing a lot about it, could have uh, presented friction, but he learned from it by watching it that it actually built trust between employees and supervisors. And so, and then a couple other folks chimed in and agreed with Colonel Miller on that. So I think the point of being patient and trusting the process is a really good takeaway. Number three, be open to discussion, negotiation. Everyone needs to be open to that. Number four, reasonable accommodation is not just about telework, even as it relates to COVID-19. Reasonable accommodation in the context, even in the context of COVID-19, could be alterations in the workplace to reduce potential for exposure. Number five, being 65 or older or having a pre-existing condition that the CDC has said makes a person vulnerable does not automatically mean the employee is authorized to telework, nor does it equal approval of reasonable accommodation. You still have to go through the reasonable accommodation process if you believe you need different arrangements. And number six, having a family member who may be vulnerable to COVID does not equal a reasonable accommodation. Uh, that would have to be addressed through other means, and there are other options and other means to do that. 
Okay, so at this time, now that you've had a couple minutes to participate in our polling question, what do you think of when you hear the term reasonable accommodation? All right, so what I see now is communication, confused. I'm not sure what confused is referring to. Uh, if you mean the the if if you mean that the policy is confusing, I can say from my standpoint, I thought so as well before getting into this, but the more I've learned about it and with a lot of dialogue, um, it isn't as confusing, it, it, but it does require getting into the regulation and the guidance and, and doing your homework and talking to the people who are the experts. Uh, number three, let's see, I see fairness and I see disability. So um, when we started this session, the, the four biggest votes were disability, assistance, work, and help. And then as we close out, communicate, confuse, uh, fairness, and disability. So some, some things carried over, um, a little bit changed. So again, uh, please speak to your supervisors or to our EEO practitioners uh, if you need to know more, uh, if you had any questions that we weren't able to get to. So in closing, uh, I wanna thank the team on and off the screen for the support of this episode of In the Valley. Specifically, thank you to our panelists, Willie Day, Stacey Sigmund, and Rachel Deal. I appreciate your willingness to talk in front of an audience of what's been up to about 600, uh, but definitely between five, four and 600 the entire time you've been on. And this will, we will record this and make this a podcast as well, so they'll hear your voices uh, forever. And they'll be able to go to this episode to learn more about this process. So again, thanks for, for doing this. Next, I wanna thank our region's public affairs offices that have supported the advertisement of this event particularly our team here at MVD, Lisa Parker, Mary Miller Ratcliffe, and Angela White for their hard work. I appreciate our emerging leaders. I appreciate Cameron Rice from our MVD's BMD, our IT uh, team that ensures our systems are all working so far, and we're almost to the end. Murphy did not have a vote uh, in our systems for this episode, so I appreciate that. Thank you everyone for that support. And then lastly, I wanna thank our audience for tuning in. Uh, like I said, we'll make this and publish this as a podcast so you'll be able to hear it in the future. And for those who weren't able to join us live, we'll be able to listen to this. I want to continue to do these once a quarter as long as there's interest. And I, I assess that interest by how many stations are on the screen. Uh, we plan to broadcast our next episode around the October, November timeframe, topic to be determined. So if you have a good people-focused topic, please submit, submit it to us and we will consider it for our next episode. And so finally, thank you, Mississippi Valley Division, for all that you do in support of the people and resources of this region. You're all making a difference. Until next time, be safe, stay healthy, and signing off from Vicksburg.